You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, reminder, our website is live, hazardground.com. Go back and check out previous podcast episodes, get more pictures, bios on our guests, and a lot of great information about what we have coming up next. Also, don't forget to write us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Play, also on Spotify, all the places you can get the Hazard Ground. We really appreciate the ratings and reviews. Certainly help us get the word out there about the podcast and help us continue to get you guys some great guests each and every week. This week, our guest, our first overseas guest, all the way from Japan, where he is a Marine Master Gunner Sergeant, and he joins us via Skype, and his name is Orlando Reyes, and his story is an interesting one, not only because he served three tours in Iraq, but Orlando's main job now, one of them is, at least in helping prevent suicides in the military and in veterans. For those who don't know, the numbers are drastically high, over 20 suicides a day for veterans across this country, and Orlando Reyes, one of the guys helping to fight that as he continues his job with the Marines. Orlando Reyes, welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, uh, you are currently in Japan in Okinawa, I assume, correct? Yes, I am in Okinawa, Japan. I've been here since about August. Well, how did you end up there? In short, why did you sign up for the Marine Corps? How did you get started? Well, uh, the answer is pretty simple. When I was first thinking about enlisting into the military, you know, I I went to all the different branches, and uh, it came down to one thing. I didn't want to be in another branch wondering if I could have made it in the Marine Corps. So I figured, you know what, let's roll the dice, and uh, if I'm going to go ahead and do this, I might as well go all out and uh, not leave any stone unturned or any you know regrets out there. So I went for the Marine Corps and uh, succeeded. And what year was this? How old were you? 1993 is when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I was still a, a senior in high school. I was in the delayed entry program, so I got to do all the cool Saturday weekend, you know, prepare, workups, and... Um, and then finally, September of 1994, after I graduated, I shipped off to MCRD San Diego, and that was the beginning of it all. So on September 12th. N- no objections then, from your family? They were fully supportive of you as a high school kid making this decision? Uh, well, my mom, you know, as all moms are, you know, she had her reservations because, you know, her son is going to the military. She didn't know anything. At the time, we were fine. There was no uh, engagements other than, you know, recent desert storm that happened in 91, but... Uh, for the most part, she was just more upset about the fact that I was leaving the house. But uh, my dad was uh, prior Army. My brother was prior Army. Uh, I had lots of uh, military in the family. So other than, uh, you know, just the empty nest syndrome, that uh, they were fine with it. So obviously it's 93. I mean, we're over 20 years now that you've been doing this. Uh, when you look back on your career, you know, and the way it started, um, did it go the way you thought it would? I never thought I'd see corporal, nor did I ever think I'd re-enlist. So here I am, 23 years later, still kicking like a, like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Why didn't you think but, you'd see uh, corporal? Uh, well, when I first came in, I had uh, an attitude problem. That's that's what I was told. <laughs> you know, I, I always wore I always wore my emotions on my face, and if if I didn't like somebody, um, I didn't do a good job of hiding it. So uh, it was pretty evident that whenever I had a. Uh, um, angry mood that it was, it was my, my emotions were on my sleeve so I, I got caught a lot of crap for that and uh, I definitely got um, incentive incentivized training 
It's a polite way back to put how it. we used to do things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back how we used to do it, and uh, but it really uh, it grew me up because uh, I learned quickly that it's not personal. It's uh, it's it's a job that you you're you're expected to perform. You you have your your left and right lateral limits on what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. As long as you follow the rules, then you'll you'll make it. So. Once I stopped uh, bucking the system and kind of, you know, fell in line as I should have from the beginning because, you know, it's, it is the military, uniformity all the way around, and that's when things started to click for me. Um, I, stopped, I stopped fighting uh, myself and started becoming more aware of how to, you know, be a good Marine. Are you saying that you got a code red? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> I, I, I can either confirm or deny. Kind of <laughs> well said, well said. Okay, so, uh, you mean you listen in 94, and when you start your whole process, it's not seven years until 9-11 when, you know, the world changes. What rank were you, where were you, and, and what do you remember? Ironically enough, I was a sergeant here in Okinawa. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, it was... It was late one night. Uh, we were we had a pretty good community when I was here last time, and we would always go from house to house to house playing darts. And it was a it was a typhoon coming through Okinawa, so you know nobody was at work, and we were playing darts one night. And somebody calls and says, you know, hey, turn on the TV. And that's when we uh, saw the first tower billowing smoke out of it, and we didn't know what was going on really. And then sure enough, we saw the second plane hit, and that's just when uh, things got real. You know, we, we didn't know what we were watching, and we couldn't believe what we were watching. And it's ironic that my parents were visiting me here in Okinawa at the same time. So it was quite a quite a weekend. You know, we get hit with a Category 5 typhoon twice because the thing turned around and hit us again. And that's when 9-11 happened. I wonder, yeah, was, was there a sense of helplessness and, like, a helpless feeling because you're on the other side of the world? We, we a lot of us, you know, were immediately angry. You know, because we didn't know, once we found out that this was not an accident and it was an act of terror, we, uh, all of us were just, uh, you know, chomping at the bit. Like, you know, what are we going to do? When is this going to happen? Because, you know, 9-11 was, you know, 2001. We didn't really start engaging until 2003. So it was a long, you know, time between, you know, what happened to us and what are we going to do in response. But um, we, we did feel helpless. But at the same time, we were also very... Uh, ready for whatever's going to come our way because you know we we being in a foreign country knew that we were going to be probably the uh the launching pad for whatever was going to be going forward to if it ever did happen so yeah i guess we, we did feel kind of helpless well i i guess what did your superior officers and commanders say to you the next day like what was the discussion well um if i recall the discussion was you know everybody knew what happened so you know they were just kind of recapping hey, everybody knows what happened nobody knows what's going to go down yet all i can tell you is stand by you know we were at a heightened security posture as far as you know entry to and from the base uh we were all just wound tight at that point but uh, we were all told just to stand by and await further orders but you know do not start any kind of rumor mill of what you think might happen because you know every every time something comes up uh, it's amazing how many individuals have been there, done that, and have opinions on what may or may not happen. And uh, they seem to be the ones that people take uh, at, at face value as opposed to just waiting for the correct word to come down. All right, so 9-11 happens and you're in Japan. You don't deploy for the first time until 2005. Is there anything significant that happens between that time? 
Well, I, I definitely had done my uh, my regular deployments, you know, when I was uh, going right. up as a sergeant as a lance corporal. You know, we did comps on the ship and things like that. But yeah, Iraq was definitely the first combat deployment. But uh, when I was in when I was here in Okinawa, I, I had to do a B billet. You know, everybody says if you're going to hang around, you're going to have to do something, whether it's recruiting, drill instructor, or MSG. So I dropped papers for uh, recruiting because they weren't taking any drill instructors at the time out of my MOS. So I went to recruiting school in 2003, uh, I'm sorry, 2002, did my three years there, and that's when it when it hit. You know, in 2003, that's when the balloon went up and Marines were starting to advance into Baghdad, and all of us that were out there on the streets were just, you got to be kidding me. You know, we, we, we practiced for the fight all the time, and now we're stuck on recruiting. So uh, I really felt bad for the guys that were at the end of the tour when that happened because they got put at stop loss, meaning that, they knew that we were sending a lot of Marines forward and we weren't sending any Marines to the schools, i.e. recruiter, drill instructor, whatever. So anybody who was on duty was staying there. So those guys didn't get to go either for a while. But uh, while I was out there, I made good use of my time. I uh, was recruiter of the year 2003 and um, ended up becoming the staff and CYC of my station and finished my tour honorably. You know, no uh, incidents, no allegations, no investigations. So that was good. And uh, I was proud of the fact that whenever I was in, across from a potential applicant, that I always asked myself that question, is the person sitting across from you worthy to stand next to you? And I kind of made sure that that was always in the, back, in the forefront of my mind whenever I interviewed somebody because I didn't want to slime anybody into the Marine Corps because, right. uh, you know, it, it, I, it's sacred. And I wish more people would do that, but uh, it is what it is. Let me ask you, what, what, was, what was part of your sales pitch to a mother or a kid while the invasion of Iraq is going on and we're in Afghanistan as to why they should join the Marine Corps? You know, it's funny. I, I had that question asked several times. Moms and dads would ask, ask me, can you, can you guarantee that my son's going to you know, stay out of harm's way? Uh, the first thing I'd say is, no, I can't. There's no way I can do that. No more than you can guarantee me that your son or daughter is not going to step out the house tomorrow and get hit by a car. You know, circumstances are, are what they are. What I can tell you is that if your son or daughter finds themselves in harm's way, they will be trained, and they will be trained by the best, you know, and they will be surrounded by others who are trained to ensure that your son or daughter is protected and not alone and prepared for what comes their way. So that's the best I could give them as far as, you know, when they were concerned about sending their son or daughter potentially to Iraq. No, I, I don't know if there's as much you can't say that assures anybody of that. I mean, that's that's the best you can do is just be honest. I don't think, as you said, no one's trying to yeah. dupe anybody into service. I mean, especially not given the climate and what's going on. And also, there was a lot of people willing to go at that point in time. It's not like I'm sure that you, you struggled to find people who wanted to raise their hand and say, hey, I'd like to get in the fight. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. After 9-11, there was a huge surge in recruiting across the military branches. And then, of course, once they started engaging, we started to see a... a, a arise as well um and we that that's when i was out there during uh 0205 when we were part of the surge effort you know we, all the recruiters that were out there we were trying to plus the marine corps up 2005 is when you have your first deployment to iraq what were the circumstances what was your mission what were you told well as soon as i got back off recruiting duty i got sent to camp lejeune and uh from day one when i got there i was like you know what i don't care what you guys got me doing i want to deploy i get me on whatever you guys can get me on. And then uh, I ended up as a, I was selected for gunnery sergeant. So of course that changed what they were going to have me do. So 
they don't really tell you as you're coming up in the ranks that as you pick up rank, prepare to find yourself in more desk jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that, that's the not so glamorous side. So when I picked up gunnery sergeant, you know, I get signed, assigned to second MLG, uh, G3 current operations. And I work in Altacottam with the general staff. And I was in what was called the Dark Tower, and that's where uh, the CG and the staff, you know, would control the battle of uh, the battlefield and the area of operations out there. So we were, I was always in the eye of the storm, so to speak, as far as in the command operations center. Um, we knew everything that was going on everywhere with everybody through all the branches and you name it, and we caught it all on uh, our board. So we, that way we knew what was what was happening, whether it was an engagement, whether it was an IED, whether it was a casualty, a casualty evac, uh, you name it, we, we caught it all. So there was a lot of long days there, but it was def- definitely worth it because, you know, our actions and response helped, you know, speed and expedite reaction towards, you know, Marines that were in contact or any soldiers that were in contact as well as, you know, anybody that needed assistance or medical assistance. So that's something that uh, I took a lot of pride in. And even though we, I would show up at 7 in the morning and not leave until, you know, 10 o'clock at night. So I never saw the sun much. I, I'm starting to understand why they called it the Dark Tower. <laughs> but uh, it, was, uh, it was a good experience, and that was my first deployment for six months. Did it bother uh, you that you never, I, never got a chance to be actually be in combat? Well, you know, here's the thing. Every, every, every machine has its intricate pieces. You know, you got your cogs, you got your wheels, you got your spokes, you got your springs. Um, my, my job in the Marine Corps is logistic support. That my job is to make sure that the, the warfighters have everything that they need to pursue forward and win the fight. That's my role. Um, now, if trouble wants me, trouble's going to get me. That's how I always look at it. We're trained to, to be warfighters. But the Marine Corps wanted me to be in the rear with the gear, so to speak, ensuring that those that needed it had it. So I've accepted my rule. Now, I remember I did a, uh, an article, not an article, but I, uh, an in- interview with the Marine Corps Times when they were talking about combat action ribbons. And um, do I have one? No. Does that mean that uh, I'm not of the full measure of a Marine? That's a matter of opinion, because if, if I was ever put in harm's way, I guarantee I would have returned fire. But that just, the cards never worked out that way. So, but when I was in Iraq, there were Marines, I'm not going to say who, that were getting on convoys, that were trying to put themselves out there. They were looking for trouble. You know, they wanted to try and get into an engagement so they can get combat action. And I didn't want to be one of those guys because, see, if you're putting yourself on a convoy, if you're putting yourself on on a movement, you're you're taking the seat of somebody who should be in that vehicle, who should be on that convoy, who's more experienced, who's ready for it, who's been out there before and is a veteran of it. And now you're putting yourself with a group of individuals who are counting on you who've, and you've never been out there and you don't know what to expect. And nobody can tell me how, how they are going to perform in a firefight if they've never been in one. Because that's it's 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 truly the great equalizer. You know, I've heard a lot of people tell me that some people excel. You know, they respond without any without any hesitation, and some freeze up. Yeah, and so it's, I didn't it's, want. To, I didn't. It's 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 surprising to see who does what. Like you think some of the toughest guys would be able to handle it, and they freeze up. And then some of the people you least expect just know exactly what to do and act like they were the w- biggest well trained warrior in the world. It's it's very odd sometimes. Yeah. So. 
like I said, I wasn't going to be one of those individuals that was just car hunting and potentially put other Marines in danger. So that's what uh, I just accepted my role and I did it the best I could while I was there. While we were in Iraq, you know, we did a lot of support for the Marines that were in camp, you know, because the engineers that we had uh, attached to us on my second deployment were constantly outside the wire, you know, repairing roads and doing what they do as engineers. So there wasn't much uh, support back in the rear when they were out. So my Marines had no experience or guidance or whatever on any kind of construction, you know, facilities, maintenance or anything. And we got ourselves some tools and we started fixing that camp up. And that's what we did pretty much the whole six months out there. And we kept the place running. So I take pride in that because without what we did, then uh, other people couldn't do what they had to do. So that's how I always balance it out. 2007, you hit your second deployment. Uh, How was that different? Where were you? Uh, That was when I was with CLB4, and I was in um, Al-Assad. Al-Assad, you know, eventually became Camp Cupcake. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm lucky to be able to be on the other side of an attempt, being able to talk about what I was going through, what happened, how I feel now. Because on the flip side, the other people who attempt suicide... Um, it works, you know, I, I, I don't want to call it a successful because there's nothing successful about suicide, but, uh, for the, for those who actually go through and, and do kill themselves, they can't look back. They can't say, thank God that that didn't work. Or, you know, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I'm still here. And it took two years for me to, uh, open up and talk about that. But I was in the senior list of PME in Quantico, and by, by now I'm a master sergeant. So for those out there who think having uh, emotional anxiety and problems and things of this nature that I'm talking about will stop and halt your career, you're wrong. Because I was a gunny at the time, and here I am a master guns now. But I was at the senior list of PME, and I was in, um, if you don't know what that is in Quantico, it's, it's a six week course for all E eights and E nines in the Marine Corps. And it's an opportunity for us to uh, get a different level of leadership training, as well as an opportunity for us to intermingle with other members of the E nine E eight community. We're talking Sergeant majors, master guns, first sergeants, master sergeants. And um, during this course, we started talking about suicide because this is, this is before the Never Leave a Marine Behind program and the Yuma pit that they have now for the Marine Corps. And uh, at the time, the Marine Corps itself was still trying to figure out how the heck do we quell this rise in, this rise in suicide. Um, so, of course, you know, we got the beating of the minds talking about suicide, and I'm surrounded by all these old dinosaurs just like me because growing up in the Marine Corps, if, if you had emotional problems or, you know, family problems or, you know, hey, I'm not feeling, you know, right because my, my mom is sick. You were told, hey, you know what? Leave that stuff at home. You work you work while you're at work. You you take home when home with you. I don't care about that stuff. You are going to do what you got to do. But now we're starting to become more uh, active in engagement with the Marines and making sure that they are ready to be heard if they have issues. So I'm in this group of dinosaurs and we're talking about suicide. And of course, all the old stigmas come out, you know, these, you know, people who commit suicide are cowards. People who commit suicide are, you know, they're, they're just, they just, they have no fight left in them, blah, blah, blah. They have all these opinions about people who have committed suicide. 
um, yet they've never had to walk a mile in any of those individuals' shoes. So I, I kind of had enough listening to all this, and I finally opened up and spoke up about my situation. And immediately, you know, I quieted everybody because now they, they feel like it's kind of like when you're talking about uh, a specific, you know, demographic or whatever. And then that person walks in the room and then like, Oh, you know, we can't talk about that no more. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, now once, once they knew that I was a survivor of an attempt, their, their opinions ceased or changed. What were, anyway, some, what, were, what were some of the stigmas? What were some of the stigmas that they were they were just so people can know? What were some of the stigmas that they were laying out there? I mean, outside of weak, was oh. it was it, what were some of the other ones? Yeah, yeah, they were the common ones. You know, they're weak. Uh, they have they have no. They don't know how to overcome problems. They're you know they 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 give up easily. They're cowards. There was, I mean, that was the biggest one. Is the fact that they kept calling them cowards. You know, that they, they really, people don't understand what's going through a person's head when it comes to that time. Some people, yes, they, uh, they plan a whole elaborate way to lead up to the final moment, so to speak. But then there are others who, like me, just, just snap, you know, like I'm, I'm done today. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. But afterwards, it was good because, um, a first sergeant who was in the group with us came up to me and said, you know, I've just got out of a bad relationship. I've been drinking a lot more than I ever have lately. And I've been having a lot of terrible thoughts because of what you just said. I'm going to go get some counseling. Wow. Cause I did get counseling and, uh, and I was, and that's when I knew right there that I cannot not talk about this. I need to let people know my story and I, not, not no, to, to make myself feel better, but because I think that when you are, when you're sitting in a theater, when you're sitting in a classroom, when you're sitting in a group of people and you're being talked to about suicide prevention and awareness from somebody who's survived an attempt, I think you get a different kind of uh, attention from the crowd. You know, they definitely pay more attention and they, uh, they, I've I've been told that people uh, you can they thank me for sharing that because you know now I I am I feel more closer to the uh, the subject and that if I and it if I can do that and get people more aware and uh, get people to help others when they see them in in trouble then I don't care how I am perceived by others because I would rather they know that I'm for real. And that others get helped by it. What do you feel when someone says that to you? Like, hey, I'm because of your story, I'm going to go get help. Because of your story, I'm going to go seek counseling. Well, immediately what I do is I, I say, that's great. Come into my office. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Because I don't want to leave anybody just kind of like going off on their own. I want to talk with them and let them know that just because I gave that class doesn't mean that my time talking about this is done. I always am open and ready to help anybody who has any kind of problems. So yeah, I, I bring them in and I, and first off, I thank them for sharing that with me because, you know, it's important that, that they feel that they can talk to somebody. And then I want to be that first person to show them that when you do talk to somebody, this person is going to give you their undivided attention. So that way I, I want them to start 
that first step of many knowing that when they talk to somebody, they're going to get heard and they're going to be paid attention to. So that way they can keep talking. Because, I mean, I was told a long time ago, you have only one chance to make a good impression, a first impression. And if you do not make somebody, you know, who's finally ready to talk about something, feel comfortable about having additional conversations, then they will not talk about anything with anybody because they don't want to feel shut down or embarrassed or whatever. Alanda, when you hear that number, 22 veterans a day who commit suicide, what's your thought? What's your reaction? Uh, it really it really sucks because I, I honestly, this is my opinion. I think that a lot of like, the guys and gals that are out there doing that are doing what I did. They're suffering in silence. I didn't, I didn't seek anybody's help. When I, went, when I was going through what I went through, I, I internalized it. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a Marine. I can figure this out. I know I can do this. I can, succeed. I can succeed because I succeeded in everything else I've been put in front of. So they're, they're trying to figure it out on their own, and they're not getting the help they need. And I, maybe it's because they don't, they don't want to talk to somebody who's not been there. That's a common thing I've talked to, uh, you know, my fellow service members, Marines, sailors, Army, Navy, that when it comes to coming home and talking with other individuals about their experiences in Iraq or Afghanistan, they can't talk to anybody that wasn't there because they don't understand. So here, you know, you're telling, we're telling service members and veterans, go, go seek counseling, go seek counseling. Well, I'm going to go talk to a counselor who's got his, you know, his degree from some college, never been overseas, never picked up a rifle, and they're going to tell me how to cope with my PTSD. So I, I, I fear that some of them are kind of counting it out before they even think about doing it. And they're suffering in silence. Yeah, it's, t- it's terrible. That's one of the reasons why I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's terrible. I mean, is it, it's just the, the number sounds awful and the situation is even worse. And, you know, I don't know that we're any closer to slowing that number down or making it smaller. Yeah, I mean, it's like when I was teaching my class, you know, uh, or when I would talk to Marines about suicide awareness prevention. That ideally, yes, we'd love to stop suicide altogether. But I'm a realist, and as much as I hate to admit it, we are never, we are never going to. But what I would like for us to continue to do is carry on this conversation, always making sure that we're always talking about it, so that way those individuals know that there are people that are sensitive to. The fact that people have emotions and feelings that we are ready to listen to them explain. And I think that's one of the things that was always a stigma before was that the reason why suicide was so uh, rampant in the military before we started getting more uh, proactive about correcting awareness and and intervention is because we just kind of turned a blind eye to it because we're, we're taught in the military how to use a rifle how to drill, how to do our job. But we're not taught how to deal with emotions. We're not taught how to talk to somebody who is depressed, who is down, who has anxiety, who is suffering a loss, who has just broke up with his girlfriend, which is so common. Um, and they don't, they, we, we were not trained before how to ask somebody that ultimate question, hey, are you thinking of hurting yourself? 
And a lot of us wouldn't ask that question, not because, you know, we don't want to deal with it or anything like that. We're just afraid of what we would do if we have somebody say, yes, I am. Because at that point, when you're here, yes, I'm thinking killing, I'm hurting myself. Crap, what do I do now? Yeah. And and now I'm responsible for this individual. And if I if I screw this up, this person might not be here tomorrow because I was unprepared to handle that situation. So most of the times before we were trained, people would kind of run that scenario in their head and say, well, I'm just not going to do nothing. I'll let the next guy take care of it. And then we would kick that can down the road, and before you know it, nobody took care of it. And then, and then we find out that somebody has taken their life. You mentioned that you have 23 years of service in the Marine Corps. Today you're leading the Never Leaves a Soldier Behind Suicide Prevention Program. Tell me about that. Well, the uh, the Never Leave a Marine Behind Suicide Prevention Program is definitely one that I was very passionate about. Um, on, over the years, it's, you know, we started to see some success in uh, Marines intervening and helping others that they find uh, in despair and bringing them to the attention of, you know, the right individuals like the chaplains, the counselors, and so on the MPLACs. So they've actually switched from the Never Leave Marine Behind program to UMAPIT. And the UMAPIT is another class, much like the the, the, the previous one. It's, it's, catered, it's tailored to uh, small group sessions of 30 Marines. We talk more now about suicide prevention, alcohol abuse, uh, domestic violence. So we've combined multiple subjects into a different uh, teaching platform. But it's still the same thing. We're, we're having them range engage in discussion. And I think that's what the Commandant is starting to do more of now. We're getting away from the computer-based training, and we're starting to get kneecap to kneecap with the Marines more now and letting them know that their their leadership is engaged with them. So the the discussions that we're having now is helpful because we're not just death by PowerPoint. And the Never Leave Marine Behind program has definitely been a great foundation to where we are now where we are getting the Marines, sailors, and those that are in the class to talk about their experiences to talk about, you know, family members who may have committed suicide or attempted or, you know, how they have felt from time to time whenever the chips were down. And we're getting the Marines to talk more and more about their own personal feelings and how they have overcome that adversity. Because that is the biggest thing that we try to, uh, to teach the Marines now is how to overcome adversity. Because that's something that we are never born with. Nobody can tell me that they knew how to how to overcome situations before they ever happen no they had to go right. through it they had to endure they had to f- talk to other people they had to get experience and then they were kind of you know brought along the way on how to deal with it so, so if we don't talk about sorry go ahead no no go ahead finish i was just saying so if, if once now that we're getting the marines to talk about this and share their experiences and how they cope and deal with things it gives all the other Marines that are listening tools to put in their bag on, well, I have, I'm married. I've never been through a divorce, but if that ever happens now, I know because of this guy's story, what I might do to prepare for that. I mean, nobody wants to think about tragedy. Nobody th- wants to think about breaking up, losing a family member, or, you know, divorcing or whatever. But when you, when you get people to talk about their experiences that have gone through it, it lets other people know what they might go through should this happen to them. 
because it's funny, nobody ever really pays attention to those tragedies until it happens to them. Yeah. So where can people go for information? Whether they're civilians right now or military listening to this, can you just give websites, phone numbers, whatever it may be, if people are worried about a friend or a loved one or somebody, where can they go for information? How can they get them help? Well, for all of us that are active, you know, we got Military One Source. Uh, you have our MFLAX, which is our military life counselors. Uh, we have the Naval Hospital. We have chaplains. For those veterans that are out there, you know, of course, I would love to say the VA, <laughs> but uh, we, we, we've had some some horror stories about, you know, the way things are going on over there. The best thing I would tell others that are out there is go to the VFW. Go to the American Legion. You know, go talk to those veterans that served in Vietnam that are still around, that have gone through it. You know, talk to other veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. Don't just put yourself in this mindset that if I can't see a counselor, then I'm screwed. No, there are so many. And I know that not one Marine would not drop what they're doing and answer the phone if their buddy said, hey, I need to talk to somebody, I need help. There's a, there's a Facebook page, uh, Suicide Veterans Awareness, you know, where I see all the time that I'm a, I'm a member of. Hey, I, I'm feeling dark, I need help. Somebody just posts it on there, and next thing you know, 80 replies. Talk to me, let me know, give me a call, here's my number. So there's, there's plenty of avenues that a veteran can tap into, not just counselors, not just the priest, not just the standard trinity of, you know, where you should go if you're feeling down kind of thing. Yeah, well, listen. Talk to other members. Of, talk to other veterans. Uh, Orlando, I mean, you know, courage comes in many different forms, and I applaud you for yours because it is something to be marveled at. The fact that you're still willing to share your story and you've had such a profound impact on the lives of so many people and you're creating a way for military members to get themselves out of darkness, get themselves out of trouble. Um, I just think it's out, it's outstanding. I'm, I'm proud to have served with you, and I'm certainly you know glad that you're still here telling your story and sharing it with people and making an impact. I can't thank you enough. Hey, it, it, it's, I'm paying it forward. I'm still here. Like my wife tells me, uh, you know, God wanted me here for a reason, and uh, I'm going to try and live up to my second chance. Amen. Orlando Reyes, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground Podcast. I appreciate you having me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.